The scripture for this morning um, is in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precept of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Hey everybody, my name is Harrison, I'm pastor here at Hope Chapel. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, we, uh, as a church, have been going through the book of Romans, and so far, to kind of bring you up to speed, we've seen that Romans is mainly about news from God, uh, news from God. Paul, the writer of this letter, is a messenger carrying Jesus' very words as an apostle, and he's running to us, and he's saying, God's son did it. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He wants you in his kingdom, in his family right now. All you have to do is collapse in faith onto Jesus. Are you ready? And we saw uh, this news finds us in a very desperate and dire situation. Uh, first, Paul described bluntly the situation of those who aren't Jewish, which uh, most of us in here fit that category probably. Um, the news comes to us as we're surrounded by the knowledge of God and his creation and his story but we suppress this knowledge with our unrighteousness. And our, our reason, our emotions, and our will all became darkened and untrustworthy. And we exchanged our intimate relationship with God for idols, for created things, and therefore betrayed the person who loved us the most. We committed spiritual adultery on God in his very house of creation. And therefore, Paul said, God gave us up in his wrath. He said, fine. 
have those things and not me. And now this wrath is manifesting in every part of our lives as the results of our sin. The perversion and twistedness and suffering that comes from the sin that God is no longer holding at bay the way he once did. And Because God uh, gives us up in wrath, we have all become on some level scoffers, uh, provers and planners of sin, uh, the worst category of people in the Bible. And so uh, for us Gentiles in this far off place, uh, news from God of a way to be made right with him. News of a way to exchange all this sin and wrath for joy and love and approval from God. Not just in this life, but for eternity. uh, Couldn't have bigger implications for us. And today, uh, this passage, there's another group that this news reaches. That needs this news arguably even more than the far off Gentiles. It's a group uh, that can actually be more deceived and hopeless Next, shockingly, it's the outward official people of God for most of Bible history. It's the, the religious people, uh, the Jews, the, the church of the Old Testament. And we're now in a section that's addressing this group. Uh, this is a person sitting next to the Gentile in Satan's concentration camp. Um, this reference to a, Satan's concentration camp is a, is a reference back to past sermons, talking about the Gentiles. Um, It's a a picture of a person who's likewise betrayed their one true love, exchanged God for idols, defected to the enemy side, and then became enslaved on that side, who's just as twisted and just as hopeless before God's current wrath and coming wrath. But there's one major difference between the the Gentiles there and the Jewish religious persons there in that same place. There's one major difference between them, though, is what what puts the religious person in an often worse situation is that though they're very much next to the Gentile in this misery, they can use their external religiosity to blindly convince themselves they're actually in God's kingdom. Uh, Have you ever seen the screens that you can put on the wall that look just like a window, but they display an outside world that's totally different from what's actually outside your house? Uh, I think we have a picture of, uh, this is a funny little ad here, um, of just some screens. Certainly, this guy is not sitting on a river, uh, you know, but he's got these screens on his wall, and um, that's not, his, you know, this, usually people do them if you're in a big city or something and you're looking at nothing out, you know, you don't even have a window. Um, the religious person uh, lives in Satan's concentration camp, but has built themselves a little house with walls of screens on which they project God's side. To convince them that they're on that side, that they're accepted, that they're free. But the problem is, their chains and misery are still in that little room. The, uh, what makes it even worse is that the walls and screens prevent them from seeing through an actual window the messenger coming with the most important news of their lives, too. And while the, the Gentile section applies to us ethnically, uh, as people who are not Jewish, Uh, This religious section applies to us as those who are similar to the Jews of the Old Testament, part of the official people of God, the church, who nonetheless internally in our hearts have committed all the same spiritual adultery on God as the farthest off outsider. And as we'll see today, a major part of the reason uh, that us in the church can struggle to receive this good news into our bones that Romans is going to give us 
is because we built these, those same walls with screens. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're right with God through other ways, especially the religious stuff that we do every week. And today, uh, Jesus, through Paul, is about to take a sledgehammer and to smash those screens and to knock those walls down. It's really, it's a passage on demolition uh, today. And it's uh, gracious that Jesus does this for us because we as a church people need those walls and rubbles on the ground and rubble to be able to actually see Jesus. And so uh, I want to ask uh, with the, the points of the sermon, what are the walls that can deceive you into thinking that you're already on God's side, uh, that actually God doesn't honor? So the, th- the three walls, um, what I call our house of self-righteousness. I wish there was four walls. Um, there's three in the passage, all right? I'm not going to make up a fourth one just to have four walls. Um, but, you know, uh, it, you get the picture. Um, so it's a triangle house. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so um, num- number one, knowing the ways of God. Number two, teaching the ways of God. And number three, outwardly living the ways of God. Uh, knowing the ways of God, teaching the ways of God, outwardly living the ways of God. And you can just leave that up there um, for the sermon. So all three things, good things, things that you're actually called to give your life to pursuing. But if you remember, uh, the Pharisees in Jesus' time did those things a lot better and more than you and I did do. And nonetheless, uh, they were whitewashed tombs, according to Jesus. They were a brood of vipers in their hearts, according to Jesus. Despite the walls, uh, Jesus said, they, will not, they would not escape the wrath that's coming. And so uh, before uh, Jesus knocks down those three walls, uh, let me pray for us. God, um, we don't just want to pretend to ourselves to be in your kingdom. We want to actually, truly be in your kingdom. Help us uh, this morning for the sake of our souls to see the difference between those two realities. If there are, Lord, those of us in here right now who uh, think we are in your kingdom, but who are deceived like the Jews were in Paul's time, would you wake us up today, Lord, and help us see our situation rightly? For those of us who are in your kingdom, but are still yet tempted to build these walls of self-righteousness, Give us wisdom today to see that temptation clearly and to run from it. And Lord, regardless of of where we are, um, help us to see you clearly, Jesus, as our only way to get into your kingdom. Amen. So the first wall to come down is knowing the ways of God. So you can follow along in your your worship guide. Uh, This is a pretty... um, convoluted passage if you just read through it so uh, it's good to probably see it to understand it so uh, verse 12 um, all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law so when Paul says the law here he's talking about the law of Moses from the Old Testament which was the, the ways of God for mankind in written form we have two summaries of this law uh, the first is the Ten Commandments and the second is Jesus's summary he says that we love God with our whole heart and mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. So the people of God in the Old Testament were specially given a written version of this law, which many of them studied and meditated on and memorized and assumed on some level that this knowledge put them in a pretty good place with God. 
And Paul is about to turn that on its head. So look at verse 12 again. So all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So here Paul is referring back to the fact that we already saw um, in a previous passage the Gentiles didn't have the written version of the law. But they were still held accountable for their sin due to the knowledge of God in his creation and in his ruling of the world. Theologically, it's known as God's general revelation, his creation and ruling of the world, uh, which was more than enough to leave all of us without excuse. But for those who had the written law, theologically, this term is God's special revelation, God's uh, written law in Scripture. Paul's first sledgehammer to this wall is uh, those who have the law and yet sin are held accountable to the law instead. So the Gentiles are judged uh, for sinning based on their knowledge, and the people of God likewise will be judged for sinning based on theirs. And the knowledge of the people of God is the far greater knowledge. This means, uh, far from their knowledge, saving them from their sin, uh, it actually only increases the severity of their judgment. You can see why the sledgehammer image is coming in. Um, Verse 13, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul's going to come back to this theme a lot in Romans, but it's our actions, our obedience, that God really cares about. It's our actions, theoretically, that could have saved us. The doers of the law would be justified. And we're going to see in the next chapter, uh, this form of salvation for the sinner is purely hypothetical. Um, No one's actually even close to attaining salvation by works besides someone like Jesus. So without our actions following our knowledge, our knowledge only condemns us further. Verse 14, "For, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the the first sledgehammer hit to this particular wall was that more knowledge only further condemns the sinner. But then Jesus' second hit here is to show that the knowledge of the law isn't even unique to the people of God. All human beings, with or without the Bible, have it written on our hearts, which our conscience bears witness to, uh, which makes this form of revelation from God not actually as special as they thought. So this is uh, one of the cool places in Christianity where there's actually objective internal evidence of this fact, the law written on our hearts. Um, So C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uh, points out that we don't know what it's like to be on the inside of the brain of any other creature. But we do know what it's like to be on the inside of ours. And inside of our brain, uh, we have a little voice telling us with every action what's right and wrong. What we should do and shouldn't do. This feeling is more than an instinct uh, because it judges between our instincts based on a higher standard. So imagine you see a child uh, drowning in a frozen pond. And immediately one instinct arises, the desire to, to save the screaming child in danger. But then when you see the thin ice... Another instinct arises, the desire for your own personal safety. You don't want to drown. Uh, Two very powerful human instincts. But as you try to decide your next action, your conscience hovers above both of those instincts. And it chooses between them, based on a greater standard. It tells you which one you should follow. In this case, uh, for most of us, probably save the child at the risk of your own safety. In fact, uh, if you don't follow this voice... 
Your conscience says, I'm going to remind you of this for the rest of your life, unless you numb me or silence me. Lewis says, uh, just what Paul is saying here, that this very thing, our conscience bears witness to a law that's written on our hearts. It's a great evidence of God's existence that we have such a law operating inside of us. And if this is true, um, you would expect to find what we do find around us, which is that general morality is much the same in almost every culture you go into. It's rare to find a society in which murder is prized by the state as a virtue. This is a really good guy, this serial killer, the kind of citizen that we want you to aspire to be like. No. If there was a place like that, it would be seen as a major exception to everything that we know is true as human beings. It's the same with the other commandments. Uh, lying, adultery, adultery are rarely, if ever, prized as virtuous and good by a religion or society unless it's a major exception with some very twisted reasoning. If the law is written on our hearts, you would expect also to find a lot of common ground in the ethics of all major religions, which coincidentally we do. Far from discrediting Christianity, it actually gives it weight that God has put a law in us. Now, this doesn't mean our consciences are perfect or that they all agree perfectly with each other because they too are affected by sin, very much so, which is what Paul is saying here with the accusing or even excusing us language, is that we can suppress our conscience, we can numb it, we can change it over time. It's not super accurate. Uh, sometimes it might even accuse you of things that aren't actually sins. But it does bear witness, even in the midst of our sin, to a law being in there. Lastly, uh, the law being written on our hearts is also the reason why many people who don't have access to the written version can nonetheless do a better job of living that law than those in the church who do have access to the written version. Uh, Paul is affirming that possibility in verses 14 through 15 here, that outsiders can do the law and be a law to themselves because the law is written on their hearts the same as ours. So we shouldn't be surprised by that because... Access to God's law is not ultimately what delivers a sinner out of slavery. So the key blow uh, Jesus through Paul is delivering to this first wall is that having knowledge of God's ways does not in any way make us right with God. First, it's not as unique as we like to think. Those far off have it too. And if we sin, uh, the knowledge only increases your condemnation. Those who sin under the law are judged by the law. Now, uh, Think about this. If this concept was true for Jews who had the, New, the Old Testament, uh, what do you think our judgment is like for those who have access to the New Testament? What do you think our judgment would be like for those who have the fullest revelation of God and Jesus Christ? Hebrews 1 describes them as the full radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. For church people, compared to Jews, our judgment is certainly far more strict. Let's say on, on top of that, um, you have uh, uniquely in history a, a, a written full Bible that you put yourself daily in front of, um, Bible reading plan, memorization strategy for verses, you're an avid listener to sermons, you learn so much about theology and proper doctrine, but there's little to no response to this knowledge with your actions. Is there any assumption for you that those practices would somehow help you on the day of judgment? If we follow Paul's logic, what it actually does is, uh, is this. This is a, a quote to the intro of Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Um, 
he, uh, this is just not the kind of intro you would find probably in a modern book. Uh, so he says, um, Reader, if it be not strong upon your heart to practice what you read, to what end do you read? To increase your own condemnation? If your knowledge be not turned into practice, the more knowing man you are, the more miserable man you will be in the day of recompense. Your knowledge will, be, will more torment you than all the devils in hell. Your knowledge will be that rod that will eternally lash you, that scorpion that will forever bite you, that worm that will everlastingly gnaw you. Therefore, read and labor to know that you may do, or else you are undone forever. How's that for an intro to the book? <laughs> yeah. Editors today would be like, I don't know if you should put that in there. People may not read your book. Um, all uh, this pastor's doing is filling out a little more starkly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If knowledge of God's ways is the way that you're hoping to make God happy with you, the truth is the exact opposite. All that knowledge you acquire, if it doesn't lead to repentance, will only further condemn you because it removes your excuses. So picture your knowledge as the weapon used to torment you. This is the wall coming down to the ground. Now, uh, let me pause here. How are we doing? Uh, I feel like I need to check in on this. We're in a very uh, low section of Romans. Um, it, gets, it gets happier as we go. Um, some of you are like, man, it sounds like I shouldn't be listening to this sermon. Uh, maybe I should head home. Um, this doesn't mean that we should stop pursuing knowledge of God and his ways. But the key question is why? Why should we pursue knowledge? And this section is teaching us that knowledge is not for its own sake. It's mainly meant to lead you to repentance, to a change of action for you. And if it doesn't, it has negative value. So knowledge is for action. Second, uh, because of your sinful nature, and this is a spoiler alert for the next two weeks, this knowledge has already by far not led to a sufficient change of action for you to stop God's wrath. So you need a far better way into God's happiness than your knowledge. So down comes wall number one to make way for something better. So let's look at wall number two now, uh, teaching the ways of God. Now Paul shifts with his sledgehammer uh, to, to this teaching the ways of God, which involves how God's people now interact with others because of their knowledge. So look at, look at verse 17. Um, if you call yourself a Jew, or we, we could say you call yourself a Christian, you rely on the law, boast in God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So Paul's saying a bunch of phrases that Jews would use in his day to describe themselves to others. They would take pride in their identity of being on God's team. I boast in God. I approve of what is excellent. I can discern the culture out there, how twisted it is, and, and my knowledge leads to me teaching others. Uh, verse 19, if, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So this is a description of wall number two. Uh, the people of God did not just know God's ways, they actually had a glorious mission from God regarding those ways. God called them to be a city on a hill that others would look to. Uh, they were to be a light to the nation, nations, a kingdom of priests. In them, all the families of the earth were to be blessed. 
Israel was given God's ways so that they would teach the world to know God and follow God again. That was their whole purpose. This is actually the same for us as the church. First uh, Peter 2, 9, uh, But you, New Testament church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The people of God carry the same glorious calling now of leading the world to know God again. And similar to, to wall number one, uh, knowledge of God's ways, the temptation for this wall number two, the calling for us to teach God's ways, was to assume that it carries an assurance that says, surely I'm on God's side. Surely I'm right before God. I'm the one God asked to teach everyone about him. I'm a, a king of Israel. Or I'm a priest of Israel, or I could say, I'm a pastor in his church, or I'm an elder in his church, or a deacon, or a community group leader, or a worship leader. I talk to my neighbors who don't know Jesus about the gospel. I serve the city. I go to serve in Greensboro. I serve the poor. I'm part of a community that brings about the flourishing of Greensboro. This is wall number two. Surely I must be on God's side, right? But again, uh, sledgehammer coming. Uh, Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So in uh, Jesus' time and Paul's time, many of the most well-known teachers in Israel were very corrupt. The high priest Ananias, uh, some of you may hear of in Scripture, a Jewish historian said that he was a great hoarder of money, who attained his high priesthood through bribery. And once he was a high priest, he commanded his servants to steal the tithes that belonged to the poorer priests and to give them to Ananias and to beat those who would not hand them over willingly. And because of this policy, many of the old priests died of starvation. The highest teacher in Israel, who taught everyone to not steal, stole rampantly at the cost of others' lives. Adultery was also common among these groups. Uh, Jews robbing Gentile temples was a thing because idols were made of precious metals and Jews could make money off of them. And Paul is pointing out the irony and hypocrisy of those who taught the nation against stealing and against, uh, preached against idols, but who nonetheless, in secret, stole idols for themselves. These are examples uh, the Jews are very aware of, that those who are most exemplary for teaching were also the most exemplary for wickedness oftentimes. His implication is that everyone in the people of God has major ways in which they just don't practice what they preach. So this is his uh, next hit to wall number two. And this truth uh, is pretty self-evident these days. I don't feel like I need to like um, prove this to you. Uh, you're flooded each year with stories of some of the greatest teachers in the church were found out to not have taught crucial things to the deepest parts of themselves. The Southern Baptist Convention's rampant sexual abuse we heard about, Ravi Zacharias' sexual abuse, uh, Mark Driscoll domineering abuse of power, the Catholic Church obviously rampant child abuse, often many of those things covered up by others. We at Hope Chapel are certainly not a stranger to that kind of discovery. It understandably feels shocking to us Uh, When all this comes out, how could a great teacher, a a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, harbor such blindness and darkness in themselves? 
But if we're shocked, it's only because we forget Romans 2 here. We forget the entire Old Testament. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first leaders of the people of God and all the wickedness and weirdness and mistresses and brokenness in them and their families. We forget the, the 12 brothers of Joseph. We forget uh, Judah and Tamar. We forget the, the judges, uh, the tribe of Dan, its corporate rape and murder. We forget the long line of kings and queens. We forget Jezebel and Ahab, Queen Athaliah after them. We forget church history, uh, popes that were filthy rich, who had mistresses, who had armies, who ruled with ruthless power, who got rich off of something called indulgences, which uh, was selling forgiveness to burdened sinners in exchange for the little money they had. God's word and church history are pretty much only full of leaders, priests and teachers who were guides to the blind, on mission, and the people of God, yet incredibly blind themselves. Now, I want to suggest that our shock at this reality actually re- reveals this wall's existence in our hearts. Surely being on mission for God, being gifted and called as part of this community of light to the world, gives us that light in ourselves, right? I want to confess uh, for me that I would love this to be true. I mean, look at me up here. You know? I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I'm doing a lot of teaching. Um, surely this guy, he knows stuff. He must be right with God, right? Paul is looking at those in his day who were the highest in estimation for this mission and saying, obviously no. In fact, he's about to say, hit number two, this wall does just the opposite. In verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So similar to how the knowledge of God, uh, if not met with right action, only increases our condemnation. Also, our being on mission for God, if we don't also teach ourselves, it dishonors God even more than if you had been on your couch all day. Because the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Meaning you're serving the city, you're being a light, your conversations with your neighbor. If you don't have those realities in you that you're teaching others of, those actions only increase your condemnation. The reason is your hypocrisy will eventually be found out, will cause people to doubt God, and will even bring blasphemy on God's name. I mean, think about how many people don't believe in God largely because of the hypocrisy of Christians in their lives. Paul is just saying the obvious, God is not pleased with that. So this wall for the sinner also comes down. So I'm going to pause again. How are we doing? How's everybody doing? Does this mean I should stop teaching right now? Uh, We should not do serving Greensboro this month. Again, the why is going to be everything. We need a better way into God's favor than our teaching and our mission. So that's wall number two. Now, wall number three is, is arguably the most shocking uh, of these, outwardly living the ways of God. So look at verse 25. Uh, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So circumcision for them was the outward sign of the covenant for the people of God in the Old Testament. God commanded this physical sign to be given to anyone in Israel, adults and their children. It was meant to signify their outward inclusion in God's people. And very importantly, this sign was meant to remind them they were called to circumcise their hearts, to make what was external, internal. 
But here's the wall. Uh, It was believed in Paul's time that no one who was circumcised outwardly could be condemned by God inwardly. The external action was enough for their salvation. But now again, Paul is turning this on his head. Verse 26, uh, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul here is affirming what the Old Testament and Jesus affirmed many times, that God is not pleased with mere externals. Remember, uh, the Pharisees excelled in externals. The external sign of circumcision, the external sacrifices they offered regularly, the external tithes. Uh, Jesus called them out for tithing things that were pretty cheap but seemed big and elaborate to others. Uh, Mint and cumin were very bushy, um, so they would take these and look like they're giving a lot, but they weren't. Uh, The drawn-out public prayers they would do. Uh, The public fasting with clear bodily signs of struggle. I'm just struggling today, fasting for so long. Jesus called them out. For these things. The Bible is clear that the true sacrifice God looked for is that of a person's life laid down before God. The true tithe is one made anonymously in secret. The true prayer is the one you do in the closet. The true fast is obedience in the heart towards sacrificially caring for the least of these. The externals were meant to lead to the internals. True circumcision was always of the heart. And this means, Paul points out, that the true Jew is one who is a Jew internally. Theoretically, a Gentile could be that kind of Jew too. God would regard their external uncircumcision as circumcision if their hearts were circumcised by obedience. So think for a minute about your external obedience, um, your outward baptism by water, uh, our version of circumcision in the New Testament, your attendance of worship, you're singing the songs, your prayers, you're going to community group tonight, maybe. Uh, your own fasting, if you fast. These things uh, are not righteousness. They're supposed to be helps that spur on an internal change. And if that change doesn't happen, Paul is saying that an outsider who has none of those helps, yet still had the internal change, could rise up and condemn you for not responding to those privileges. So this is Paul's first sledgehammer blow that really brings down the whole house, the triangle house. Uh, It would bring down a four-walled house, too, if you got three, you know, three walls. It's not enough. Uh, Hold it up. So um, your special knowledge of God's ways only condemns you more. Your special role in teaching God's ways only condemns you more. Your special external living of God's ways, if they don't lead to a full internal repentance, only condemns you more. These only increase your wrath such that you have far more wrath stored up than those who are far off. And remember, um, we are like a spouse who has continually committed spiritual adultery on God in his very house. And to to bring this all together, uh, imagine that you're married. Your spouse is a serial adulterer. And while they're in the middle of a string of affairs that are boldly perpetrated in your house, and you're upset, uh, they say to you, why are you so upset? 
Number one, I studied and memorized our vows. I know exactly the kind of faithfulness you want from me. From me. Uh, surely that should make you happier, right? That's our knowledge of God's ways. Then <laughs> they continue. Um, on top of that, I lead a class on adultery at church. I tell others just how wicked and damaging it is to their spouses. In fact, it's my life calling to rid the world of adultery out there. That should help, right? That's our teaching of God's ways. And lastly, um, they say, none of our friends would suspect anything about my affairs. I wear the ring you gave me around. I, I talk highly about our own faithfulness. Uh, surely, uh, I, I mean, obviously I ignore you when they're not around uh, and sleep with loads of other lovers, but I look very much like a faithful spouse on the outside. So why are you actually that upset? I imagine uh, you would say to such a spouse, all those things make me even more upset, actually. The problem is adultery. And all you've just told me is that you clearly know better. You're setting up a whole class of people to be utterly cynical and confused about adultery when they find out that you're the chief adulterer. And lastly, I don't care what our friends think of you. They don't know the truth, and it's not their marriage. It's ours. What about what I think of you? So to combine the images of this sermon together, imagine you're standing in the ruins of what you thought was your little house with TV screens for windows, your house of self-righteousness. And Jesus has knocked all those down with a sledgehammer. You're looking around and see yourself for the first time in your actual surroundings, Satan's destitute, horrific concentration camp. For the first time, you notice the chains on your hands. Not only that, your house came down as you were committing adultery on Jesus with so many other idols. And now you stand naked and exposed before him, idols all around you with no hiding or excuses left to give. And he stands with his sledgehammer, and you imagine he is so angry. How could he not be? For not just your adultery, but also your pretending to be someone you were not. And then imagine him walking up to you and lifting his sledgehammer one last time to bring it down on what you imagine is your head, and you close your eyes and you brace for it. And it is to this very moment that Jesus is leading the religious insider in this text. Because only now would we be ready to receive the good news. Because if this is you, if you can identify with some of these struggles today, you hear his hammer hit loudly and you wince. But after a moment you realize, I'm still here. You open your eyes and the mallet of the hammer is not on your head but it lays on your chains, which are now broken in two. And as you look up into Jesus' eyes, and he kneels next to you, you don't see any anger, but only tears of compassion and love. And you also notice so many bruises of so many hammers that had come down on him very recently. And he says, I have some good news for you. You've been pretending your whole life You've been looking at screens on a wall your whole life, a fake version of what you were truly created for. Would you like to come and experience the real thing? I've paid for it for you, myself. And I'm offering you far more than you ever pretended could be true. Not just tolerance from God, but God singing over you. 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You becoming a son and daughter of the one true God. Taking him into your very heart through his spirit. And him giving you full assurance of your eternal life. Not based on what you do or did, but based on what I have already done. So he says, do you want the real thing today? All I require of you is to leave this house of self-righteous rubble behind and let me carry you out of here to a much bigger house that I've built for you myself. It belongs to you now. That's the good news for religious people. So my challenge for us this week is to not stop doing these three practices, knowing, teaching, living God's ways, to actually to do those intentionally this week. But uh, before you do them, uh, maybe you're about to read your Bible, you're about to pray, to think back to this passage and to remember, number one, the negative value of those practices to earn any favor with God. Imagine the, the ruins of the self-righteousness house under Jesus' sledgehammer. And number two, uh, remember Jesus' free offer to you for far more than you were hoping to gain from God by that practice. And then number three, take his offer on his word and let it sink in. And lastly, four, do the same practice you are planning, knowing, teaching, living God's ways. And notice, how does your experience of that practice change? What new motivations surface for those actions besides just helping to make God a little more tolerant of you? This is what God wants for us all the time. For you to try this experiment of actually relying on Jesus for your justification and then obedience coming out of that. And I'm hoping by doing that experiment, maybe for the first time in a while, many of us could taste a joyful obedience that comes from complete favor that's already freely given. I want to close with a prayer from a prayer book called The Valley of Vision. Um, this is a, a Puritan prayer book. Uh, so Puritans were a group during the Protestant Reformation that were fighting to knock down actually these three walls of self-righteousness that had infiltrated their church in England. They're fighting to purify the church and to recover this gospel we're looking at, which is how they got their name, the Puritans. Um, and most of the writers of our confession as a Presbyterian church were Puritans, actually. And so this prayer book is really good for going deeper into this gospel. Um, they are as honest about sin and judgment as Romans 1 through 3, and also as honest about Jesus and salvation as the rest of Romans is too. So here's the, this comes from the prayer of privileges. It says, uh, How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my Father, God, and friend. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him, all is love and the repose of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without him, all things external call for my condemnation. In him, they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. 
Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Amen.